Groucho Marx, a wolf in ship's clothing. Your order, sir? No leading questions, please. Just uh, wrap yourself in a piece of lettuce between two slices of bread. It's the Marx Brothers Council Podcast, episode 44, Double Disappointing. Way back in episode 20, we took a good look at the not-terrible 1947 film Copacabana, the first movie to star Groucho and no other Marx Brothers. And now, almost a thousand years later, we return our steely but sensuous gaze to the odd double feature of Groucho films released by RKO in the early 50s, Double Dynamite and A Girl in Every Port. That's right, friends. This is the 44th non-skidoo episode of the Marx Brothers Council podcast. And uh, rather than just end the show right here, I might as well bring in the guys. I'm Noah Diamond, here as always with my co-hosts. First, he wrote the annotated Marx Brothers. He co-wrote the annotated Abbott and Costello. If you're not careful, he'll annotate you. Matthew Conium. That's English for Smith. (laughs) And a man who has spent the last few weeks editing the Winter Olympics in which I understand he's won a gold medal in everything. Here is Bob Sledden, Bob Gassell. Damn it, Noah, you gave away the topic, so it doesn't matter what I say here, because no one's listening. (laughs) (laughs) We can say what we want now. (laughs) And our very special guest is a film expert and collector, longtime contributor to the excellent Muppet fan site, toughpigs.com, where he writes articles and co-hosts the podcast, Moving Right Along. In addition to all this, he is a school librarian, cinematic omnivore, and Marx Brothers fanatic. In fact, he has even seen the two films we're discussing today. Here he is, the one, the only, Anthony Strand. Well, that is quite an introduction. Thank you so much for having me on, fellas. I'm so excited to talk about these two um, worthwhile movies. Sure, we'll go with that. Yeah, I'm glad somebody's excited to talk about it. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, but before we do, as you know, Anthony, uh, everyone on this show uh, toward the top of the the uh, episode um, gives us their Marx Brothers origin story. And um, you have said in the past that the Marx Brothers were your gateway to classic cinema. How did you stumble upon them? So that's true. But before that happened, the Three Stooges were my gateway to the Marx Brothers. Because when mm-hmm. when I was in fifth grade, the Three Stooges were on the Family Channel every night uh, for like an hour. And we'd watch it. We loved it. It was my favorite thing. So the first day of sixth grade, I was I got my Three Stooges t-shirt at Target. And I was going to wear it to school on the first day of sixth grade. That's how all in I was. I was, I was Mr. Three Stooges and everybody knew it. Everybody except my grandma, who misremembered or just didn't care. And got me a book about the Marx Brothers instead for Christmas in sixth grade, which was the Kate Stables book. Do you, do you guys know this book? It's just like a very thin, it's not, it's not really much of anything. It's a very thin overview of their career. Well, my grandma got me this for my, for Christmas when I was in sixth grade and I read it having never really heard of them. I'd seen, I'd seen Groucho probably, but I read this book and I thought, wow, these movies sound great. I got to see this. So even though my grandma got me the wrong book, it turned out to be the right book because then I went to the Grand Forks, North Dakota Public Library and I checked out Duck Soup 
And, and that was it. I was gone. I, I was floored. I couldn't believe it. And then I, you know, checked out, I guess probably the night, night at the opera and the rest of the Paramounts over that year. And then the next year for Christmas, my, so my birthday is December 30th. And so between Christmas and my birthday that year, 1997, seventh grade, uh, my parents got me duck soup and monkey business for Christmas and then animal crackers and a night at the opera for my birthday, which, and then I ended up going to Suncoast Video, uh, again, in Grand Forks, North Dakota, which what a time when you could walk into the mall in Grand Forks, North Dakota and walk out with a copy of Horse Feathers. You know, like what, what a gift that was in the nineties that, that we didn't realize at the time, you know, like, um, but so I, I ended up going myself with my paper out money or and buying the rest of the Paramounts and I guess the day at the races and a night in Casablanca, which was the only ones they had. And then I just watched them all the time. Like I, I, everyone knew me as like the guy who likes those weird old movies, you know, and, and that was, it just, it never stopped. From there. That's something we have in common. I, I also experienced the Marx Brothers first um, by looking through a book about them before I had ever seen them on film. Um, it's interesting to know that, you know, that they can grab you that way, even just um, in the form of photographs. Um, you can develop an obsession with these guys. And speaking of photographs, any picture that was in that book to this day, if I see any of those photos in any other context, it's just like, oh, that's from the Kate Stables book. You know, if I, like when I, when I read the March Brothers scrapbook or whatever, there are certain photos where I'm like, ah, yes, Kate Stables book, you know, which obviously it's the other way around, but I just read that thing so many times. I was like that with, um, I had a book about horror films that I used to pour over before I was able to actually see any horror films. And, and when I, when I would see the films later on and see these stills seemingly come to life, it looked as though it was something that they'd cleverly done. Like when people kind of recreate Renaissance paintings as films, right? Yeah. Things, you know, yeah. it looked like somebody had taken those photos and very, very cleverly and painstakingly recreated them on screen right. it's a very strange feeling yeah isn't, isn't that amazing how they make boris karloff look like he can move yes <laughs> <laughs> uh, and is it true anthony that you have the ability to remember the running time of any film you've ever seen uh, so you're 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 saying this because uh, my friend greg carlson put it in a profile that he wrote of me that's right right i don't know that i would make that claim i don't know that i could say literally any movie that i've ever seen <laughs> But I do a pretty good job. I, I have a pretty good memory for that sort of fact. You know, what also like what year a movie came out, what studio made, you know, just, just trivia stuff. You're not actually Rain Man. No, I'm not. No. Um, but I, <laughs> You're not actually Rain Man or, or Mary Lou Henner. Right. No, no, I'm not. I will say, though, that on that topic, when I was in high school, I would often, I like in my mind, I would judge things by one, like how many duck soups lengths it was rather than an hour. Like I, tr I tried to adjust my brain to make 68 <laughs> minutes the default, the, the, the default time. Using duck soup as a unit of measurement. Exactly. But turn around to the back seat and it's okay, kids, we'll be there in two and a half duck soups. Right, right. <laughs> well, I, I should say also the only one of the Marx Brothers movies I've ever seen in the theater was Duck Soup in, at the Fargo Theater in 2003, double feature with Dr. Strangelove. Uh, and it was great. And I think about it all the time. And I always mean to, you know, see the others and the situation just hasn't come up. So that's, that's always my goal is to attend another theatrical screening of a Marx Brothers movie. But 
just hasn't happened yet. I think that's very cool to see a Marx film on a double feature with a non-Marx film, as opposed to seeing two Marx films in a row. I think that's right. Well, good yeah, programming. Which one was first? Which one did they show first? Duck Soup was first, right. which I yeah. think made for a much better flow. You know what I mean? You don't want nuclear annihilation and then Duck Soup happens, you know, but... We're, we're pelting fruit at Margaret Dumont. Sure, that's a nice warm up for the war room, you know. It is true that uh, the chance to see their films in a theater with an audience um, is is somewhat rare. In the last couple of years, of course, it's rarer than it, it's ever been. Um, but it is such a pleasure, and in a way, it's like seeing them again for the first time. Um, and so, you know, it's still there for you. In a way, it's an enviable position. Every Marx Brothers film but Duck Soup, the next time you see it with an audience, um, it'll be a whole new experience. Right, yeah. Uh, When the restorations of the Paramount films came out some years ago, uh, they were all screened um, in in many places. But here in New York, they were at the Film Forum. And uh, that was the first time I saw a number of them uh, with an audience. And uh, yeah, it completely brings it to life in a whole other way. Um, and uh, hopefully we'll, there'll be more chances to do that as we, uh, as we move along in history here. Well, I, I guess there's no point in delaying it any longer. We're going to have to talk about these movies. Hey, I was thinking this episode could very well be considered the prequel to our previous one about You Bet Your Life, because it's this story about Groucho not getting a film career going that sort of leads into him doing You Bet Your Life. So there. Yeah, indeed. And and we're right on the cusp of, between the pre-You Bet Your Life Groucho and the You Bet Your Life Groucho. Right. Um, the, and the two films, interestingly, although they are released almost simultaneously um, within two weeks of each other, um, Double Dynamite was filmed much earlier. It's filmed in 1948, released on Christmas Day in 1951. Um, and Girl in Every Port, which was a much more recently made film, um, comes out on January 8th, 1952. They just straddle the new year. And they kind they also go together because they're both in this period where Groucho was somewhere between movie Groucho and television Groucho. And they are also both RKO films from this period when RKO had been acquired by and was being run by Howard Hughes. Mm-hmm. Um, now, normally I would throw in some interesting facts here, but... Um, I tell you guys, I looked into it. There just doesn't seem to be anything interesting or unusual about Howard Hughes. <laughs> you know, it's it's funny. Uh, speaking of of formative influences or whatever, I think the first time I ever heard of Howard Hughes was there's an SCTV sketch about the movie Melvin and Howard, which is called Melvin and Howard's, which is where he keeps picking up, you know, Howard Hughes and then Howard Cosell. And then I don't I don't remember who the others are. That when I when you say Howard Hughes, that's still what I think. Cause I had no idea what that meant. Like I didn't know what Howard Hughes was. I didn't know what Melvin and Howard was when I first saw that sketch. So mm-hmm. even though like now, you know, I've mm-hmm. I know who Howard Hughes is. I've read um Seduction by Karina Longworth. I, you know, I, I know who Howard Hughes is. But I still think of that sketch when you say the name Howard Hughes after after you know 25 years or whatever. So do we have any idea how Groucho ended up at RKO here? Why he did a couple films for them? Uh, most of what I know about this, I read in That's Me, Groucho by Matthew Conium. Huh. He's giving you a layup, Matthew. Oh, sorry. Um, well, uh, hang on. Let me, uh, let me browse through it. Then. I know that the first film didn't originate at, at RKO, and I think 
Groucho was sort of attached to it before that. It started off... Um, Michael Curtis had it, didn't he? Uh, he? Yeah, he bought it in 1947 right. as a vehicle for James Stewart. It then went to Columbia... Mm -hmm. Um, with Irving Cummings and Irving Cummings Jr. bought it from Michael Curtis. And so, yes, it already had the character written for Groucho in it because it had Leo Rosten and Manny Mannheim involved. So Groucho was kind of part of the package that then went to RKO. Oh, okay. Do we know if Curtis was considering directing Double Dynamite? Because that seems impossible. I think so. Huh. Yeah, I think well, it, it was it was very different then. Um, originally, it was um, it wasn't a musical, um, so it was presumably just. The, although it's an incredibly flimsy story, I presume it was just the bare bones story about this this little bank clerk who was going to be Jimmy Stewart, and it was going to be a you know a Jimmy Stewart against the machine type you know little, little man mm. wins out type story. Um, it only became a musical, I think, when it when it got to RKO and Frank Sinatra got attached. That's when it became its only money which was its shooting title. Sure. Hmm. Well, and it's, and it's barely a musical as it is. Yeah, a couple of songs kind of tacked in. Yeah, two songs, uh, one of them done twice and spectacularly uh, undersold as well, isn't it? One, uh, it's the, they're in bed, they're both in beds singing. Uh, and then It's Only Money, uh, uh, that lovely sequence of Frank and Groucho on a treadmill uh, going past <laughs> yeah. New York street scenes. It's only money, it's only gold, but you can't get enough of the wonderful stuff that you jingle or fold. It's only money, it fluctuates, but there's this thing about it, the poor schnook without it, the girls don't give dates. I love the artwork, the treasury sure does smart work. The nicest people we know are the people who get their faces on dough. It's only money. It's only dough, and the people who crave it, who worship it, save it, all come to know. You can't take it with you when you go. Yes, that sequence is really, I think, unintentionally quite remarkable. Yeah, Groucho Marx <laughs> and Frank Sinatra running on a, dancing on a treadmill, singing to money. I mean, they're holding like thousand dollar bills. <laughs> And singing to them, showbiz, showbiz. Uh, you wouldn't really know it from the film, but uh, Double Dynamite actually is, I guess, the last time Groucho was um, paired on a project with a truly great comic writer, um, Leo Rostin, who, um, you know, the mind sort of reels to think what might have been made of a real collaboration between them if Rostin had had a chance to really write for Groucho. Uh, might have been interesting. When I was, uh, I guess, about 13, I read The Education of Hyman Kaplan by Leo Rostin, uh, writing at that time under the name Leonard Q. Ross in The New Yorker. And um, I think I laughed out loud at that book more than I had at any, anything I had read up to that time. And they were good friends as well. So yeah, it, it is a pity that uh, it didn't. I mean, I think it's, the whole film is a is a pity, really, in insofar as I think it is by far his 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 best solo film, and I think it's by far his best solo film performance. So I think it's a shame that it's the one of the three in which he is, a, you know, in such a a secondary role. 
because they, you know, I think he's, he, he, you know, does does a good job in this one. The fact that he is in a secondary role was the reason I thought this would be an interesting thing to talk about on the podcast, because what a strange choice. Like, this is the only time in his entire career that he's in any kind. I mean, I know he did like some live TV stuff, mm. the Mikado and some stuff like that. But as far as movies go, and of course, you bet your life, like Groucho is always the star. That's, that's what he does. And mm. here he's playing Frank Sinatra's sidekick, like unquestionably Frank Sinatra's sidekick. Like, it's a role that feels like it could be played by, I don't know, Frank McHugh or William Demarest or something, almost. You know, like, they, those guys wouldn't have Groucho jokes. Right. But it just feels like, oh, here's my friend who's a waiter who's going to help me with my scheme. It's real yeah. strange. Yeah. I think you, you could understand it more if he just had, a, a like, a guest star. You know, if he had, like, one great scene where he came in and, and sort of took over or something. But to be a fixture throughout... Um, it, it is you. It, it, you almost sort of feel the film is straining to 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 let him go. I mean, the the scenes like when he goes into the bank pretending to be the uh, the big businessman are so much better than than the rest of the stuff. You just wish it was about him. Yeah, that's the one scene that really feels like his old character, or at least m- maybe the MGM character. You know, it's it's pretty similar to the phone call in a day at the races, right? Hmm. Yeah. I, mean, it's, I love it when the, when the guy says, uh, "Have a ch- take a chair," and he, and he says, "Is it clean?" Yeah, that's good. that's that's a really good that's a good Groucho moment, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But it's kind of the only part that feels like Groucho. I think the idea of casting him in a supporting role is interesting, though, and it's specifically an interesting way of dealing with the problem of Groucho's character in a more or less realistic story. Yeah. Um, you know, what do you do with Groucho in a film that's not about, um, you know, grease paint mustaches and the complete overthrow of reason? Um, and this is an interesting approach. As with so much about this movie, the whole movie would have to be better in every way for us to really assess how successful a choice that was. But I don't know. I, I mean, it's like a, putting him in a character actor role and I specifically a sort of vaguely ethnic character role that, you know, I could imagine someone like S.Z. Sakal playing this part, you know, um, which would be really a, a kind of interesting. And, and Groucho kind of commits to that. He, it also helps, I think, that he's wearing wire rim glasses here. For people who know him, it's not really the You Bet Your Life Groucho slumming it in a second-rate film, nor is it the old... Um, Marx Brothers Groucho. His look is slightly different in this film than it has been anywhere else, and uh, and it helps. When you actually think about the part and what it's asked to do, this might have been a better solo vehicle for Chico than Groucho, playing the waiter. Waiter in an Italian restaurant. Yeah, and sort of gets into a situation where he has to, like, hold on to some money, and he's taking advantage of it. Um, How about uh, Frank Sinatra? Yes, Groucho plays kind of a this secondary role to Sinatra. I think one of the things that makes the movie not quite cohere and not quite work is that Sinatra is, is also miscast. Um, Oh, I I totally agree. You know, when you think of Frank Sinatra, he just radiates self-confidence and and cockiness. Yeah. And this character is meek and mild mannered and all that. I I just don't think it's a good fit. This is definitely Jimmy Stewart territory. Yes, I, what makes Sinatra really interesting as an actor is a, a sense of kind of a relaxed intensity. This character seems to have some inner turmoil that doesn't quite match what the story asks him to do. 
And Jane Russell similarly just doesn't have that much to do in her part. And mm. I, I think if Groucho were playing the comic relief supporting role to um, to ingenues who you really felt something for, it, it might help a lot more if there were more sympathy for the protagonists. Or uh, Margaret Dumont playing Frank's mom. <laughs> <laughs> Some Groucho-esque touches in the screenplay include references to an Uncle Julius. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's a couple of... Uh, and there and there are a couple of decent jokes and, and funny moments throughout, just not quite not quite enough to, uh, to make the thing fly. Well, so many of Groucho's quote-unquote jokes in the movie are he just, like, says a quote or talks about somebody who lived a long time ago. Yeah. A lot of quotations, yeah. Yeah, and like yeah. that's, it's like substitute comedy almost. It's like you f- you can feel how it's supposed to be a joke moment, but there's there's absolutely nothing funny about about that <laughs> stuff. Uh, he does well with the poetry. Uh, one one character quirk he's been given is that this character, uh, Emil Keck, uh, spouts uh, poetry quotations, and uh, Groucho handles that stuff pretty deftly. You you can see here. This is in a way. It's an. It, it's interesting. You say, Bob, that Chico would have been, in a sense, better cast in this role because it. Yeah, kind and of, I'm thinking it would have been more of a supporting role, like um Walter Brennan in uh, Meet John Doe. Yeah, it's not unlike um, what Chico does on uh, the College Bowl, right? Right. right? Yeah, make him the kind of uh, avuncular um, host for the young protagonists. An interesting thing about their relationship, uh, Groucho with um, Frank's character. I'm sorry, I don't remember all these characters' names. I, I wasn't that vested. <laughs> um, uh, Johnny Dalton. Okay, How okay. could you forget Johnny Dalton? He, he's got about as much future as a snowman. Okay, now think about this. Groucho is supposed to be Frank's, I guess, friend and confidant. But at the beginning of the film, it's Groucho who breaks up Jane and Frank. He tells Jane that she could do better than him. So he causes that whole scene. And then later on, when Frank comes into the money and he comes back to Groucho with his story about the guy with the glasses and all this other stuff, Groucho doesn't believe him at all. Calls him a liar, basically. And then later on in the film, when Groucho is entrusted to hold on to the money, he takes advantage of the situation, like overspending here and there, going nuts at the hotel. So I don't know why Frank's so enamored with him. Yeah, that, that there's a suggestion, as with uh, Alan Jones and Chico in in those two MGM films, there's a suggestion of this long history together. They've yeah. been they've been friends for a while, but it doesn't completely make sense, and it isn't well explained. And Jane Russell, um, an actor, singer, model, and sex symbol of the '40s and '50s, uh, best known for Gentlemen for Prefer Blondes, a, a few years later, mm-hmm. um, she's used interestingly in this film in that there is a concerted effort not to make her eye candy as she had been in other recent projects with her discoverer, Howard Hughes. And there are a lot of jokes in the press that Groucho's presence had something specific to do with this. Uh, But uh, Jane's quite covered up throughout this film. And there seems to be an emphasis on trying to give her uh, comic material. She plays drunk uh, during a long sequence here. Uh, What's your assessment guys of, of how that came to be, this particular way of using her, and how successful or unsuccessful it is in the film. Well, I think it's obvious that if it wasn't for her relationship with Hughes, there's no way she'd be cast in this film. I mean, if you're not going to use her 
and I'm using air quotes here, natural talents, I don't see what you expect to get out of her. I mean, she brings nothing to this. I mean, I've never been a big fan of hers in the first place, and this just confirms that I'm not a fan. So I'm sorry about that. We forgive you. I am a, a very big fan of hers, but um, yes, she is. She is notably uh, restrained. It, mm-hmm. it is an odd uh, project for her. But she, I mean, she wanted to branch into comedy, and she, you know, she she was very good at comedy, um, as she showed later on. Um, I think so. It's a kind of a, a tentative step into comedy, I guess. Yeah, I mean, she's not. I I agree. I I don't think she's very good here. But so much of her part in this movie is just kind of repeatedly crying at Frank Sinatra, not crying, but like repeatedly telling Frank Sinatra that he is not being a good boyfriend. <laughs> like she doesn't, she doesn't really get much to yeah. do other than, you know, I mean, she, they give her lines like, I want to go somewhere where bread and butter costs a dollar and a half or whatever it is. <laughs> like, it's not, it's not good material. <laughs> her performance feels very flat, no pun intended. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In her autobiography, she says that, that there wasn't much of a rapport between, between the three of them. Not many laughs on that set, she said. So, you know, it, one of the reasons why the, the mixture just doesn't rise the way it should, it could be as simple as that, that they just weren't particularly enjoying making it. I think perhaps the most amusing thing about this film, and Matthew, you, you mentioned this in your book, is the fact that the press was encouraged to publicize the fact that there was a bubble bath scene in the film. Though it turns out to be Groucho taking a bath, not uh, not Jane. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, I mean it's 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 full of things like that that, that deliberately set up and frustrate expectations. Uh, not least the title, of course, which was a, a late switch, but which is obviously uh, you know a reference to her superstructure. Um, and the, and there's of course the, there's a joke in there as well, isn't there? 125 pounds, extremely well distributed, is is uh, the um, the description that's put out of her. <laughs> yeah. And that was a bit strange, wasn't it? The film turns meta for a moment, very late in the going. A man, Caucasian, brown hair, blue eyes, five feet ten, wears elevator shoes, anemic looking, when last seen was wearing ill-fitting suit, well padded at shoulders, resembles Frank Sinatra. The girl, Caucasian, brown hair and eyes, height five seven, weight 135 pounds, extremely well distributed. That is all. Rosenthal. What what does that mean at the end? That's obviously a reference to something, isn't it? At Rosenthal. Is it how they ended police dispatches? I got the feeling it was like a reference to something in popular culture at the time. Yeah, I'm not sure what that is. It's like, or just a rhyming sign-off along the lines of "See you later, alligator." That is all, Rosenthal. <laughs> right, right. And like I said, it was a real strange move to go meta, like ten minutes from the end of the film, right when the the plot was at at its climax. It's it smacks of desperation a little bit. I think it's a good example of how the jokes don't work. Because I think describing Frank Sinatra's character as anemic looking and like making sure to say blue eyes and all like I think that's all fine. You know, like that's that's it's not great material, but it's kind of cute. Anemic looking because he's famously so skinny. But then to say resembles Frank Sinatra, it's hitting it on (laughs) the nose for no reason. And it's not mm. funny. It's not any, you know, and it also, it feels a little bit like the joke in His Girl Friday, where Cary Grant says that um, Ralph Bellamy reminds him of Ralph Bellamy. But when you got Cary Grant saying it and it's just Ralph Bellamy, I don't know. That's funny. But Sinatra's too famous for it to be, to be <laughs> funny, maybe. I don't know. 
It just doesn't quite, it smacks of desperation because I, the film has not been that kind of winking at the audience, you know, meta theatrical, yeah. all out anything for a laugh kind of experience. And so going there so late in the game, it just feels like uh, we'll do anything to get a chuckle at this point in the film. Uh, I agree with you too, Anthony, that there was probably a way to do it without saying the name Frank Sinatra. You could have gotten your in-joke in without, you know, fracturing the the very delicate reality established here. Right. Yeah, they, they could have been more clever, like getting the color of his eyes wrong or right, out yeah. of nowhere just saying he, he was a bad singer. And it's also, Frank Sinatra is one of three uh, super recognizable, iconic performers in this film. Uh, so why is he the one who gets, who who's... A real identity is made into a joke. It almost just serves to underline how miscast he is and how out of proportion with um, the size of his fame mm-hmm. this role is. Mm-hmm. Although this was from his sort of doldrum years, wasn't it? It was before yeah. he uh, he came back in uh, from here to eternity. Yeah, yeah he's actually billed third. Uh, yes, yeah, it, it's very, very interesting third billing. Yeah, which which uh, people have speculated is is has as much to do with with a personal dislike of him by Hughes as as any uh, you know any more um, rational consideration. But it is true that this these were not boon years for him. He had been big, and he was to be big again. But mm. this was a bit of a. Well, that's interesting too. Um, and so, so Groucho kind of at this point searching for anything. This is still uh, before the success of You Bet Your Life and um, during this period of misfires, Groucho trying to make it as a solo artist. Uh, Jane Russell also trying to be used in a different way than she had in other films. It's like everybody is sort of out of their element here. You know, another thing to consider here is that although Groucho had been in front of the cameras and on stage for decades, no one knew if he could actually act. He had yet to be called upon to actually turn in a real performance. So, you know, in effect, he was auditioning in front of the public here. Uh, I think in that regard, he's, he does fairly well here. And I think if, if you compare it to his performance in Copacabana, it's a little better. Uh, you know, he's, he's gotten a little further toward being able to play a real person and uh, uh, while still making use of his, you know, uh, personal comedic arsenal. Now, now, clear this up for me. Was, was Groucho being offered many parts in films? Was he turning things down? No, no, he, he was looking for anything in in film. He would have taken anything and and did. Did he ever voice a, an opinion about? Oh, I I want to do this. I want to do like a Bob Hope type film, or I like this role. I wish I would have had that role. Not not specifically. I I don't think. No, he's just same as with with radio. I think he he just thought that he was a you know a, a ready made um, you know ideal performer that for some mm. reason. Uh, you know, just wasn't getting breaks. I think he was confused and frustrated, uh, just as he was with radio. You know, what I wish they would have done with Groucho in his solo career is basically slot him into those W.C. Fields types of roles, you know, sort of a grumpy guy with few redeeming features. Let him be himself. You know, doesn't have to have a heart of gold. It doesn't have to be anybody's best friend. Just let him be grumpy Groucho. I mean, it seems sort of obvious, right? Yeah, I mean, the the... The common thread of his solo work, I think, is is the con man, isn't it? That's that's what he kind of uh, um, zeroed in on. Copacabana as well. Um, he's the he's the you know the the flimflam man. 
in old but he's on the so. good side. He's not he's not like the bookie or the gangster. He's he's the kind man on the good side. Yeah, of the plot exactly that. Yeah, yeah. All of that feels to me like he's trying to be Bob Hope, right? That's that's the lemon drop kid mm-hmm. or whatever, you know. Yeah, and he. I think I've always kind of thought of Bob Hope as a more toothless version of Groucho. Anyway, you know, he's he's doing quips, but they don't have the bite. And that's kind of what Groucho is like in in all three of these movies. He's just like saying vaguely Groucho-esque jokes that aren't really very funny. And it feels like, I I don't, obviously you you all know more about this than I do, but it feels to me like the thought process was if Bob Hope can get up there and do toothless jokes that aren't very funny and have hit movies, so can I. (laughs) What I do like about, about his solo performances, all three of them, is that he's kind of fearless again. He doesn't, he doesn't acknowledge any sort of um barriers of authority or or you know decorum um whereas with bob hope um you get a kind of perhaps a superficial display of that but then when his buck is called um he he becomes a coward and and he has you know coward humor which is the way groucho was going in at the circus and go west Mm -hmm. um so so uh, i I think very much under the influence of hope and and the radio comedians so it's nice that he's kind of he's kind of dialed back on that in these uh solo ones where he is once again somebody that you know that doesn't give a fuck Yes, and it is nice to be free of the Marx Brothers rules a little bit. Um, I mean, it would also be nice if these solo films were just better films, um, and, and then the whole thing would seem a lot more valuable and worthwhile. Mm-hmm. But there is something nice about in in Copacabana and in these two films. You know, we don't have to be thinking like, ah, well, Groucho really has to be an authority figure and a fraud, and the rest of the world has to take him seriously, and he has to not deserve it. Um, you know, yes, he, free is a good word for him here. He can, he can be this waiter character. Um, and it's, it doesn't make us feel like, you know, Rufus T. Firefly is a waiter in an Italian restaurant. It makes no sense whatsoever. Um, and, and it's interesting watching Double Dynamite, you know, and trying to figure out, well, what, what would, what would have made this better? I mean, what, what exactly is it that makes this whole thing fall so limply and We've uh, mentioned many of the reasons already, miscasting and and kind of uh, lackluster writing. Mm-hmm. But if it had been successful, uh, uh, creatively successful, I mean, if it had been a better piece of entertainment, um, it, it's kind of a Runyon-esque uh, low-life fable, you know, a story of down and out you know, strivers mm-hmm. in, um, in, a, in a big city. Um, it seems like a milieu that Groucho would have, yeah. you know, fit right into. And maybe the only, maybe all it really needed was better writing. You know, the two lead characters need to be defined in some way so that we are interested in watching them. Um, every review I've read from the time has very little good to say about the film but nothing bad to say about Groucho. Mm. New York Times review uh, dismisses the whole thing as soggy and <laughs> dull, but M- Mr. Marx is wonderful, you know, and he is. Mm. 
I forgot to say earlier, actually, another another good example of of um, how how, he's, how he works in these films is, is are the scenes in the restaurant with his boss. Um, when you first see him in the restaurant, you assume it's his restaurant because he's you know he's he's lording it over the place, and it's quite a surprise to see that he that he isn't that he has got this boss. But then there are two or three moments where he he just leaves because he you know he has to he has to attend to the plot, so he just walks out of the restaurant, and he's not he's not given comic excuses you know he's not like coming up with with wacky reasons he just says right i'm going uh, you know <laughs> yeah. and and it has absolutely no respect for his boss's authority the boss character it's william edmonds who had also played an italian restaurant owner or a bar owner in uh, it's a wonderful life he's martini and it's a wonderful life yeah. a few years before this yeah. and he's terrific here i think like you say he doesn't he doesn't really get that much to do but his reactions to Groucho just leaving are also very entertaining. Like, I think they have a nice chemistry. I think that, you know, a, mm-hmm. a, a sitcom about Groucho and William Edmonds working at a restaurant. Sure. I'd watch that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And partly because of the casting of Edmonds, one thing that is correct about Groucho's casting here is um, it doesn't feel age inappropriate. Right. Um, as, as his age will feel a little bit like an issue in the next film that we discussed. Um, but here uh, partly because this is the owner of the restaurant and this is his boss, uh, Groucho uh, looks fine for him to be this kind of career waiter who's been, uh, you know, bussing tables at this place for, for decades. Mm-hmm. Uh, a colorful local character is how he comes across and uh, and is pr- pretty convincing that way. Uh, there, there was, uh, according to uh, your book, Matthew, even some grease paint mustache debate going into this one, which is hard to imagine. I mean, even after Copacabana, it was still a debate. Well, he was he was still kind of um, agonizing about about whether he should or shouldn't. Yeah, uh, yes. Yeah, so I, I spoke to Marie Marie Beho, who was um, the niece of uh, Mel Burns, the RKO makeup man, mm-hmm. uh, and she said that that Mel Burns told her um, that he had to had to convince Groucho that it was the right thing to to abandon it um and he was still thinking well maybe maybe i should because that's what what people will expect of I me i don't know uh, that sounds fishy that sounds like somebody's trying to grab credit for something that uh well it could well be but it but you know and it's 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 interesting if so that, that that's what they came up with because we know that he's already made that stand that he didn't want to wear the grease paint and he's already appeared in a film without it so i don't know why it would even come up again a, a film which which unfortunately though didn't didn't live up at all to mm. to huge expectations of for it you know and and in which he did do a grease paint scene so i think it's i think it's fair to i mean there, there just are an awful lot of stories whether they're whether the extent to which they are true or not it mm-hmm. is a constant running theme uh the, the the famous bob hope one which i take to pieces a bit in the book but you know the fact that it was a story in the first place tells mm-hmm. tells its own thing of him coming out of the the hollywood caravan without it not being recognized going back in putting it on i don't think that happened but the fact nonetheless that it that it was a story that was told i think reflects uh a, a, an awful lot of thought going into that mm-hmm. subject over these years and do I have the chronology right? Uh, Double Dynamite is filmed before the radio premiere of You Bet Your Life. But by the time it's released, You Bet Your Life is very much a going concern. It's it's You Bet Your Life era, but obviously it's pre-TV You Bet Your Life. So it, it he's still, uh, you know, as, as a visual figure, yeah. he's still, he's still um, very much untested outside mm-hmm. of the Marx Brothers. 
So any theories on why this was held back a couple of years? I mean, um, Howard Hughes, you know, RKO under under Hughes was not a rationally run company. There are all kinds of stories like this. Films that took far longer to to, to go out. um, Seven years, I think, in the case of Jet Pilot, wasn't it, between production and and release. Uh, He was just a very careless, uh, shoddy, um, utterly, you know, idiosyncratic and answerable to no one person who who made arbitrary decisions. And, and, uh, you know, there was no infrastructure to, to challenge him. And you know what's really surprising? I just saw The Aviator, and, there, and there's nothing about the making of this movie in that film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Scorsese movie, of course. Uh, yes, the Scorsese biopic about uh, Howard Hughes, which, yeah, inexplicably leaves out the most important thing about him. That <laughs> he produced Double Dynamite. <laughs> and the strangest thing about him. <laughs> Well, um, uh, any are there any any last words on Double Dynamite before we uh, move on to the second picture in our double feature? Only that I I think I like it more than you three. I I, no, I, I like I, it. I quite I quite like this one. Yeah, despite my nitpicks, I thought this was perfectly hmm. fine. Um, I do wish it had more music in it. You know, I wish yeah. Frank had a showcase. I wish I wish Groucho had a solo song. I may um, uh, Matthew's comment makes me wonder if I've overstated my uh, <laughs> antipathy here. I mean, I think Double Dynamite. Yeah, it's a very mediocre movie in most ways. Um, but when Groucho is on screen, I really love it. And um, actually, both of these films, but more so Double Dynamite. I think when watching it, there are many individual clips. Like that you could take one or two minutes worth of Groucho's performance mm. and isolate it and, you know, post it on the internet yeah. and show it to people. And it, it seems very interesting. What is this? What is Groucho doing here? Mm. Um, his perf- and his performance, I think, is quite good. I sort of wish that the film around him were a little more worthy of what he's doing here. But it's not unpleasant. I mean, it's not an unpleasant watch. Mm-hmm. I think this might have been only my second or possibly third time watching it all the way through. Have, have you guys seen it more than I have? This was my second time. I've seen it half a dozen times, yeah. This is my first. This was your first time? Oh, really? About? I didn't expect to like it at all. I was like, oh, this is enjoyable. Not great, but whatever. I didn't struggle to get through it. Whereas the next one, um, Girl in Every Port, I, I did and do struggle. Well, can I, can I say my final thoughts on Double Dynamite? Please um, do. So, yes. so I watched this one with my wife, who had never seen it. I'd seen it once. And she was like, her reaction to it basically was that was kind of cute. You know, um, she thought Groucho just seemed like Groucho and he was saying things in that voice and it, it made her laugh sometimes. Hmm. And when it didn't, she just kind of ignored it and thought it was pleasant enough, you know? So Mm -hmm. it did make me think that I had been probably too hard on it previously. Although I do agree that it's much better than the next thing we're about to talk about. I'm just so curious what the average moviegoer thought about this new incarnation of Groucho. Yeah, he had done Without the Grease Paint and Copacabana and Love Happy, but those were basically the same character, just toned down 20% or whatever. But here, he's doing something somewhat different. You know, he's really trying to play a part. And I'm curious whether the audience was able to really buy into this or whether they wanted to buy into this. Yeah, and it is uh, maybe most interesting to me as a what-might-have-been portrait of Groucho as an aging character actor. I mean, if this movie 
had pointed the way forward for what the rest of his career was going to be like, mm. um, it would be interesting. And I mean, you can imagine similar roles, you know, funny waiter roles. I mean, that's an entire genre of character part, you know, mm. and it wouldn't necessarily have been the most worthy thing for a person of Groucho's genius to do, but he could have done it very well. Yeah. I mean, there's, he could have done it in dozens of films if it had worked out that way. Yeah, I could totally see him doing these feature bits where he gets a special billing and the Groucho marks in the credits. For sure. mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there was a chance, you know, one thing that could, that might have happened um, if he was willing was that he, he could have become a kind of guest star comic on film as he, as he, as he was on radio, you mm. know, showing up with a scene here, a scene there in like a road picture or being one of the, the Preston Sturges kind of rep company, that sort of thing. But I, I don't think he would have been happy with, with anything other than number one dressing room. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, and and before we turn to the other film, uh, do you is do we detect any of what made Leo Rostin a special and funny writer here? Uh, he he has credit only for the story, um, but um, uh, looking for traces of Rostin's wit, um, there's a reference to uh, a horse named Soros. Did I hear that correctly? Um, in which case, that might be a little. Yiddishism that we might attribute to Rostin. Yeah, I mean, Rostin more or less lays claim to the, to the whole idea of, of, of Keck, the character of Keck. He implies that he came up with that character, that he wrote it with Groucho in mind and for Groucho, and that yeah. he, was, he was very pleased with, with, with how it turned out. Um, Isn't there that credit based on a character... Based on a character created by Manny Mannheim, which which yeah. I talk about in in the book um, right. as as being inexplicable, not least because it doesn't say which character. Um, it, it can't be the main characters because they were in the Pasadena story before Mannheim mm. turned up. So what I what I think happened is Mannheim did a did a, a script revision, did a bit of doctoring of mm. to to beef up the Groucho role. He was specifically because he was a radio writer. He was a Groucho right. writer. He'd written for Groucho elsewhere. So I think he was brought in and they said look here's this character Groucho's going to be playing it can you can you beef it up a bit Groucho it up a bit and that turned into the slightly uh, inaccurate comment character created by uh, because because Rostin is adamant that he created the character and I can't imagine it could be any other character so I, I have a question was the only reason this film got made was because Groucho was attached as the star would they have gone ahead with it if he had uh, dropped out I guess it probably would have would have still gone ahead. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't hinging on him, but it but it was definitely you know that character was written with him in mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sinatra owed RKO a picture at this point, and I, I think Jane Russell owed Hughes a picture at this point. Um, and it does kind of feel like that. Oh, a bunch of people who owe us a picture, we'll put them in a picture together. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> if you liked that one, you know, <laughs> if you had gone to see Double Dynamite on its first release, mm. um, if you had gone uh, after your Christmas dinner in 1951, and if you came away from that experience um, eager to see another Groucho Marx movie, uh, just two weeks later, you could have seen a uh, girl in every port. Um, or as I call it, a day at the races, part two. <laughs> yeah, another day at the races. But it both is and appears to be um, a much later film because even though the releases are right on top of each other, um, this is a few years later. Groucho is noticeably 
older here, and he's also just noticeably different here. Um, you devote some some uh, column inches to this, Matthew, the idea that like now we really are watching the TV star Groucho kind of appearing in a film. Yeah, and also uh, you, you definitely get the sense that this is a, uh, an occasion where he is doing the film a favour rather than the film is doing him a favour. Mm-hmm. Um, the, you know, the, the film wants him, he doesn't want the film. Um, and unfortunately, although that means this is the most uh, generous in terms of uh, attention focused on him and him alone, it's, it's the purest star vehicle for him because even, even Copacabana is a, is a two-hander. Uh, and very much in support in Double Dynamite. This is absolutely a Groucho film. And, and it's just a shame that I think the material is by far the weakest of, of the three, to the extent that I really do struggle with it. And Groucho isn't putting a lot of effort in because he knows he doesn't have to. Hey, I know a lot of people rag on this film, and it's not a masterpiece, but I found it a pleasant enough diversion, mm-hmm. uh, particularly the first half hour, 40 minutes or so. Yeah, I admit the, the plot sort of overwhelms everything in the last half, but still, yeah. I don't, I don't get the hate. Yeah, I mean, it's not. I don't hate it. You know, I, I, you know, I, I like to see Groucho in anything, and I'll happily put my feet up and watch him in anything. This one just, just is more frustrating for me than the other two, simply because, you know, it's, it's so, it's so ready to be the Groucho mm-hmm. film that that you've always wanted, you know, and and. So, you know, even at this late stage, you know, it, it, it could have it could have turned into something new for him. Um, but it's, the, the, the script, uh, I think, is is no, notably poor. What are your general opinions of this one? Anthony? I, I hate it. I hate it so much. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's dreadful. I think. All right. Now, are, are any of you familiar with Hal Roach's Streamliners, which were a series of short yes. features he produced in the in the early 40s? And through the 40s, I guess, there were a, a series of those, which were a series of army comedies starring William Tracy and Joe Sawyer. And I bring this up because this movie starring Groucho Marx is a worse version of the army comedies starring William Tracy and Joe Sawyer, who are two people, you, you guys might know who that is, William Tracy's in uh, A Shop Around the Corner, stuff like that. But, um, you know, they're not, they're not big names. But they sure. made these silly little comedies about two soldiers just, like, getting into scrapes and knocking about. So here's Groucho Marx, 60 years old, and William Bendix, the, the life of Riley himself, who was, I don't know, he's not quite that old. He's in his 40s, playing essentially the same 25-year-old, you know, military guys that, that these actual people in their 20s played in these other silly little movies. Groucho seems a thousand in this movie. He seems like he is 145 years old and he's wearing this sailor suit and he spends the whole movie being like, oh, I got to go do some schemes. I'm such a I'm such a wacky guy, you know, fixing dice games like if he was 60 and trying to be the old Groucho, the, the Paramount Groucho or something, I would at least understand it. But he's like. 60 and playing a streetwise kid yet smoking a cigar and wearing glasses (laughs) it's all very confused and again if if the jokes were funny that might be better Mm. but like Mm -hmm. there's a there's a one scene where they're gonna like pull off the big heist with the with the two horses and we get this close-up of groucho 
It's close up of his grinning face saying, any questions? Yes, isn't there a simpler way to make a dishonest dollar? Like he says any questions and then he answers it himself. And the movie so obviously thinks this is like the money shot. This is like Groucho saying a classic Groucho line. <laughs> and it's, it's a non-joke. And to me, that's very emblematic of this entire movie. And I, I don't think anything is, is funny here. It's interesting, the, the life of Riley angle, because, uh, you know, um, uh, William Bendix, best known for Life of Riley on radio and film. Um, and that show was created by our old friend Irving Brecker. Um, but it was um, unproducible. Sponsors would not sign on to it with the original intended lead, which was Groucho Marx uh, as Riley. Um, the show only became successful and, and, um, and, and flew for the sponsor when Groucho was replaced by Bendix. So there's some mm-hmm. interesting history here, although no apparent hard feelings. Um, but it does, I mean, it's almost hard to imagine um, that Groucho and William Bendix would be up for the same <laughs> kinds of roles. Uh, they're such completely different types. Uh, I mean, both very good. And William Bendix is a, a really enjoyable comic performer. Uh, but, you know, it, it seems uh, almost laughable that, oh, well, if, if you can't get Groucho, call Bendix. <laughs> <you know? laughs> um, also known uh, as Babe Ruth in the Babe Ruth story. Um, um, and then our other um, our other star here is Marie Wilson, um, best known for my friend Irma on uh, radio, TV and film. Uh, she also would be Marie Antoinette in The Story of Mankind, that archetypal Marx Brothers movie <laughs> that we all enjoy so much. Um, but it's interesting, I think, um, Marie Wilson's performance here and the way she's used in the film, it pr- presents an interesting contrast with Jane Russell in Double Dynamite. Um, for one thing, um, Marie Wilson, who is known more for comedy, but she is provided for in this movie as though she is a comedian. Um, I mean, she is also used as eye candy and as an ingenue and and all of that. She's not as modestly dressed here as Jane Russell was in in Double Dynamite and in her love scene in the car. Um, she even has a musical score timed to the falling of her shawl off her shoulders. <laughs> Yeah, but she is also funny. She's given kind of you know dumb blonde jokes and and uh, lines to do, but she's provided for. Yeah, this could have been a total disaster in the wrong hands, but I think she does a really good job with with a tough role. And she is billed above Bendix at the start, isn't she? She she gets the second second billing. Yes, and the publicity materials definitely highlight her. In fact, the poster is you know. Uh, Marie Wilson and Groucho Marx uh, and Bendix is just kind of sticking his head in on the side of the frame. They obviously knew what they thought their big assets were. It's a lovely poster, that one, I think. It's it's, uh, it's the best <laughs> thing about the film. Yeah, and the the slogan on the poster is join the world and see the Navy, which calls to mind a moment from Duck Soup. Yeah. Also, though, it's the title is A Girl in Every Port, so you need a girl in every port on the poster, right? Like. Mm. And you don't you don't want it to just be Groucho yeah. and William Bendix. There's only one port in the film, by the way. That's true. That's true. <laughs> yeah, the title doesn't doesn't really work. <laughs> yeah, that's that's what it is, right? It's a movie about sailors, and we're going to give it the sexiest sailor related title we can think of, even if that doesn't have anything to do with it. Well, because there, there's a very odd history of of um, 
convoluted uh, title choices, which I which I mentioned in the book. It, it, be- it began shooting under the title "They Sell Sailors Elephants." Uh, other other um, sources announced it as as <laughs> "Old Sailors Love Elephants," and sounds like an early <laughs> Hell Roach title. Yeah, and they sell monkeys to sailors. Um, but it was always said, you know, we're going we're to give it a better title. Mm. There was still dialogue, of course, in it about selling elephants to sailors, but it, but it eventually had this, this title, uh, A Girl in Every Port, but it says that it's based on a story called They Sell Sailors Elephants, but it, it actually isn't. It's based on a story called A Girl in Every Port. So mm-hmm. how that incredibly complicated circle got back to where it started without ever acknowledging that's where it started from, I've no idea. But it's a strange, convoluted story. <laughs> I think we can all agree that a girl in every port doesn't seem like a great title for this until you imagine it being called "They Sell Sailors Elephants." Mm. At least it's more distinctive. Like I feel like I would, I would remember it. Better, you know, especially as it's a film about a horse. I mean, it, it, that is a, it is a great title for a film about a horse. I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a horse in every port. I, I think that could have been uh, obviously worse. I was going to say one of the biggest problems, I think, is that it's a film about two horses, little Aaron and little Shamrock. And it is impossible (laughs) for me to remember which is which or like which one is whose. It's like they spend this whole movie being like, I've switched little Shamrock with little Aaron. Little Aaron is doing the thing. Little Shamrock is. Well, who cares? Like, I can't tell. I can't tell the two (laughs) horses apart. It's not not funny. It's not interesting. (laughs) It is one of those classic identical horse body switching comedies. <laughs> um, there is one more cast member of note who we should mention, and that's Dee Hartford. Um, it's her film debut, um, an actor and model who plays uh, Millicent Temple, the fiance mm-hmm. of um, the character uh, Bert Sedgwick, who's played by Don DeFore. Uh, but what's interesting about Dee Hartford is that her sister is Eden Hartford, Groucho Marx's third wife. And I assume they met during the, the making of this? He catched the date off of D. He said to D, you know, um, have you got sisters? Which one isn't married? She says, oh, Edna, which is her real name. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he then said, you know, when I finish making this film, would you like to go on a date? So he was, uh, yeah, he, he basically he basically used the film as, a, as an opportunity to procure women. But D didn't like Groucho so much, did she? Not greatly, no, and he didn't like her. I called it Icy Knockers. <laughs> that would have been a title. Yeah, which is the opposite of Double Dynamite. Yes. <laughs> that should have been the film's title, yeah. <laughs> you met, you mentioned Don DeFore a minute ago, Noah. Don DeFore is the dad from the TV show Hazel, which my mom might be the world's yeah. biggest fan of the TV show Hazel. So know that I come to this movie with the baggage of spending many hours in my youth watching the incredibly boring TV show Hazel. Now, I love Shirley Booth. Hazel. But every time Shirley Booth's not on screen, you gotta watch this guy be a dullard. So, I'm watching this movie and every time he talks, it's just like, oh, the dad from Hazel won't stop talking about how he's given up racing. Cool. Can we move on? So that's 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 my issue. I understand, but man, I do not enjoy seeing that guy on screen. I I like Don DeFore. I think he and Marie actually have some chemistry. And believe it or not, I actually like that scene where they're on the water with the sweater coming off and on, and they end up kissing. I I think that's a well done romantic scene, and that's usually not the type of thing I would particularly like. I like that too. 
She's winning in a Judy Holiday kind of way. There's some confusing plot moments in this that I want to bring up. Not that I care about the plot. <laughs> First of all, uh, and, and as an homage to Groucho's two previous horse-related films, he does the Southern Colonel bit again mm-hmm. and plays the guitar. Yes. It was fun to see him play the guitar again. So let me give an example of something that didn't make any sense plot-wise. They go into Don DeFore's office, dressed as the Southern gentleman. They're going to try and pull pull something off here. And almost immediately, DeFore recognizes Bendix as the guy he sold the horse to. So in a normal world, in, in a normal movie, the jig is up. You know, why even continue? But they just go ahead and go on doing the gen- Southern gentleman and go on trying to pull this scam off and... The four doesn't give a second thought to it. Then he just believes everything else they say. (laughs) Yeah, I can't really untangle that either. Uh, But I do think maybe the comic highlight of this movie is the scene where Groucho does his Southern Colonel character uh, called Colonel Forsyth here. Mr. Sedgwick, sir, I'm afraid we all have the advantage of you all, sir. I'm afraid you have. And if we haven't, we will have. (laughs) He's really very funny in that scene, I think. And, um, even more than in a day at the races, he stretches the the absurd accent uh, to its absolute limits. At one point, he's he says, "You also have been the victim of a swindle," <laughs> which is not a southern accent anybody's ever spoken in before. But he delivers it with so he's so shameless about it. But again, if only the material you know rose to it. I think it helps that Groucho is playing a man his own age. Oh, that's true. The colonel, when he's the Southern Colonel character, he momentarily seems to be the right age in this film. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's the thing. Yeah. Do you think from that angle, if they had just even given a few lines about being a career sailor or something like that, being in the service for decades, they could have made it okay. Because you want to accept Groucho in any costume, in any part. But by not acknowledging it, they made it conspicuously this, but th- there is a scene towards the beginning where they're on, you know, KP duty or whatever, Groucho and Bendix are, and a fellow sailor comes in and says, I understand you guys are in for life this time. And Groucho sure seems like he must be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're not, they don't you know? see, he doesn't seem like he's going to, you know, get, finish up his stitch and get married and settle down or something. <laughs> I, like right. the, I like the little bits with the, with the gangster. What's his name? High Life? Yeah, I wish they would have gone more down that road. There was a funny little montage of all the characters getting their newspapers in the morning when they see that one of the horses has been kidnapped and seeing their funny reactions. And the gangster high life is actually in a room with his two henchmen are are sleeping in the beds right next to him. (laughs) Yeah, there is this gangster theme running through both of these movies. And Copacabana, too, you know, has a little touch of that as well, you know. I, they all three actually make me think of Damon Runyon. They're all kind of, mm. you know, urban lowlife fables. And um, that would seem to be a pretty good structure for, for finding other things for Groucho to do in film. Uh, it's too bad it, it didn't happen more. Because um, I think in that sense, all three films are on the right track. That's that's what to do yeah. with him. Make him a cartoonish, lowlife, a Broadway Danny Rose kind yeah. of character. Let me bring up two other things that I'm curious about. This little moment where multiple people give one of the horses uh, like a little pep pill before a race. And you keep thinking, well, what's going to happen here? Is the horse going to run the wrong way? Is it going to fall asleep? What's going to happen here? What are the repercussions? And 
there really are none. He wins the race, and it's it's totally forgotten that that whole thread of of a plot. Yeah, it's a little bit like a day at the races, isn't it? Like by the time we get to the race, we don't know what's <laughs> supposed to be happening or <laughs> who's winning or why. Hey, maybe I should do an edit where I put hi hat into the race. <laughs> right? Well, the gangster's name is High Life. High Life meets Hi Hat. Yeah. Yeah. One last thing. A couple times it's brought up as sort of a little side gag that these other sailors on board are literally going to kill Groucho and Bendix if they if they lose their money. I mean, are are they serious? Are they really going to put an anchor on them and throw them in the in the in the harbor? Yeah. And then they're going to seize control of a department store and kill uh, Margaret Dumont. <laughs> Right. Although I will say that that scene where the other sailors are threatening Groucho has, I mentioned Bob Hope earlier, that has, I think, Groucho's most Bob Hope-esque line delivery I've ever heard, which is, All right, you guys, one at a time. Just remember, I haven't got my glasses on. You wouldn't hit a man without glasses, would you? <laughs> that is such a Bob Hope yeah. joke. Like, obviously, <laughs> Bob Hope's character doesn't wear glasses, but, like, just this, like, I'm afraid I'm going to get beat up, so I'm quipping my way out of it, you know? Mm-hmm. Hey, absolutely. Uh, there's something about the final frame of A Girl in Every Port uh, after the movie has kind of limped across the finish line of its plot. It ends on this shot, very classic shot of Groucho, you know, puffing the cigar and wagging his eyebrows, kind of like, we're determined to send you home with the, you know, no no uh, question about it. You saw a movie with Groucho Marx in it tonight. And it's, it's, it's a shame because, it, you know, I think people were in the mood for it it did do very well that's one of the big surprises about it is is that it did better on its second week than its first which you know normally even if it has a strong opening of people who are curious it then falls off but this one actually had legs and people did want to see him and they did go out and see it in in pretty big numbers and there was talk of a sequel right there was discussion of it yeah so was this the most financially successful of the three groucho solo movies I would think so. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't actually have the figures, but uh, I know uh, Copacabana was predicted to be a, a, an absolute smash. It, it got sensational critical word of mouth uh, and and pre-release uh, attention, and and was a, a notable disaster uh, that took everyone by surprise. Um, I, the um, Double Dynamite, I, I think, kind of passed by without anyone really noticing it much. But but this one, people people came out for and, and seemed to like, because I guess you know because now by this. Time, time um you know the the you bet your life tv groucho is uh is a draw sure yeah and this is pretty much it for groucho in the movies i mean his mm. his other solo film appearances are either cameos like in mr music and and uh, will success spoil mm. rock hunter or skidoo which kind of stands on its own as a a later effort um but um this odd trilogy of Copacabana, Double Dynamite, and A Girl in Every Port is pretty much the entirety of Groucho's attempt to be a solo film star. I wonder, when You Bet Your Life hit, uh, did he just totally lose interest in making films, or did the studios think, oh, everybody gets their fill of Groucho every week on TV, they don't need to see him in a film? That's the thing, is he, he got everything he needed from, from TV. He got acclaim, fame, uh, and, and an easy gig that was a short drive from his house that he could sit down mm-hmm. while he was doing. You know, what, what, what did he want with anything else, you know? Mm-hmm. And you can really see it even in Girl in Every Port. He, Groucho doesn't seem to be working particularly hard, but it does look like uh, a lot harder as well as less rewarding in every way than what he was doing on television by then. 
Oh, we should say, I think, that probably the most famous thing about this film now is that, that uh, Sid Perelman visited the set and wrote uh, quite a lengthy piece about it. Hmm. Yes, talking about the mechanical horses that uh, Groucho mm. and Bendix were riding. Uh, that piece is called I'll Always Call You Schnorr, My African Explorer. And yes, it's mm-hmm. one of the handful, two or three pieces where Perlman goes into detail about Groucho um, and the Marx Brothers. Hey, I want to get back to something that Matthew mentioned earlier in the podcast. Um, it's so interesting that Groucho never had that star vehicle where it's, you know, a Groucho Marx film, name above the title. He certainly was a big enough star to warrant it, where the studios just not confident that he could carry a film or his character could carry a film by himself? It's it's interesting that, because you're on one hand, you're, at, you're right, Matthew, that it, this film is more of a starring vehicle for Groucho than either of the other two are. Um, on the other hand, it does cast him in a two-man unit with, um, you know, somebody who is also in the same exact place he is, um, same exact costume he's wearing. Um, and so... And also Copacabana was, as we know, an attempt to explore the possibility of Groucho and Carmen Miranda being Mm. this new team, this duo. Um, I guess there wasn't that kind of hope around the union of Groucho and Sinatra or Groucho and Bendix. But obviously you can't have Groucho on his own in a film because because he's got nobody to talk to. The, the you know the essence of of what he does is 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 dialogue. So he he needs the sounding board, uh, whether it's Margaret Dumont or, or yeah. you know Frank Sinatra or, or or Bendix. He needs to have somebody there that he can provide a constant commentary on what's happening to. Um, so yes, he could ne- he could never literally be be the sole focus in a film. And as I say way too often on this podcast, I think this might have been a great point for a, a triumphant Zeppo return. Mm. <laughs> Cast Zeppo as the as the Bendix character. Mm. I mean, to be fair, Bendix does fine. He, there's just not any chemistry with him in Groucho, and the same with Sinatra as well in, in Double Dynamite. I mean, I'd like to see Groucho with somebody who could he could do a real give and take with. Actually, like Carmen Miranda in, in Copacabana. Mm. Yeah, I'm sure you're right that the if it had been another comedian or somebody who was a peer of Groucho's and Danny know, Kay or something, yeah, yes, or Bing Crosby as a singing mm. comic performer, mm. uh, that might have been interesting. The choice they did make was that they would be, you know, as they say in the film, brains and brawn. Groucho is going to be the smart, you know, verbal guy, and Bendix will be the the big brawny kind of apish guy. Um, we haven't really seen uh, that so much before. Sometimes in the Marx Brothers films, when Groucho is facing off with uh, an Alky Briggs or mm-hmm. the strong man and at the circus, there's a little bit of that. But um, I don't know, the idea of making Groucho the brains of the operation and the other guy is the the brawn uh, could have been interesting. Um, if, and if that was the decision, I'm not sure. I can't think of anyone like better than William Bendix for that. But if they had made the other character, you know, have some different qualities, uh, it might have been interesting. Jackie Gleason? Oh, yeah. Well, Groucho and Gleason, uh, as we know from those Gleason show appearances, did have chemistry and uh, real affection for each other. And Gleason also later played uh, Life of Riley. <laughs> right, yeah. Well, we may have uh, we may have come grinding to a halt. Uh, anybody, uh, anything uh, that we didn't get to that anybody wants to uh, 
touch on with these uh, these two masterpieces? Mm. <laughs> well, we didn't really get into Groucho playing the guitar here in uh, Girl in Every Port. He does oh, this. Yeah. He okay. does this aggressively terrible version of "My Bonnie Lies Over the Ocean." My Bonnie lies over the ocean. My Bonnie lies over the sea. My Bonnie lies over the ocean. Oh, bring back my Bonnie to. But I think it's kind of fun to hear him play the guitar. Yeah. I, I always kind of wished he had done it more. You know, his brothers all got to play. It's not all. Zeppo doesn't doesn't get to play. But Harpo and Chico got to play instruments in most of the movies. And it's nice to see Groucho play the guitar a little bit more. Yeah, and I like I love his harmony singing too. He it all it seems very off the cuff here. Like they might have said at the end of that take, like yeah, that'll work. That's fine. He seems to really be kind of just winging it and having fun. And Bendix is, I think, playing a mandolin. Is that what uh, Bendix is playing in this scene? Um, and and acquits himself nicely too. So it seems like the three of you guys prefer Double Dynamite quite a bit more. Whereas, oh I, yes, I'm I'm a little mixed. I didn't. I didn't have a strong preference. I thought Double Dynamite might have been the better film, but I think I might have enjoyed Girl in Every Port maybe just as much because of the, the supporting characters. And this, it seemed like a bit more fun for me. That's because you have a higher tolerance for the dad from Hazel than I do. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, if you could cast Don DeFore and Marie Wilson in the parts Sinatra and Jane Russell played in Double Dynamite, that might have been the best Hey, listen, Anthony, I understand your Hazel issue. I could, I could really relate, but, you know, <laughs> I, I was able to get past it. I was able to get by the myth of, of Don DeFore. Sure. <laughs> sure. Yeah, and he, he really is fun. He would be actually better cast as the Sinatra character just because he could play nervous. And, and certainly, like, he plays annoyed, you know, well. Mm-hmm. So he might have been better. Th- and Marie Wilson would definitely be better casting than Gene Russell in Double Dynamite. There's one other character in this film I really like. I'm not even sure she had a line, and that was the secretary who kept picking up the phone every time DeFore bolted out of the office. Yes, right. The the secretary carefully chosen yeah. by his fiance. Yeah. <laughs> uh, hold on a moment. Let me see yeah. if I can. Let me see if we can name that secretary. Well, we can. Or, or maybe she'll become like the manicurist for us. <laughs> Don't get me started on another search, please, please. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So everybody just hang on while we Google. No, actually, why don't we talk about Erwin Allen? Yeah, he's credited on Girl in Every Port. And he also produced Double Dynamite, but didn't want didn't want anyone to know. <laughs> uh, but he's uh, Mark's brother's fans know him best as uh, the guy who would go on to produce uh, Story of Mankind, right? As well as... Uh, Joy's. Joy's. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, that's... <laughs> That's why we like that guy so much. <laughs> That's is, is that why? And he was involved, wasn't he, in the the, the aborted attempt to uh, revive You Bet Your Life in the early 70s. Oh. There was some speculation that around the time of Evening with Groucho that he might be up to doing You Bet Your Life again. Uh, and it was obviously decided that, no, he wouldn't be up to it. But I believe uh, Alan was, was involved with that project. Well, Erwin Allen, folks. Oh, 
I got confirmation. Lillian West. That's uh, the secretary. Yeah. That was so much easier than the manicurist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was no problem at all. Um, Lillian West, huh? Any other interesting credits in her? Uh... Oh, she was a maid in uh, Double Dynamite. Oh, uh, no kidding. Meet John Doe. She, she seems to have played woman a lot. So that's, that's obviously <laughs> something she specialized in. It's typecasting. You know? yes, she got pigeonholed yeah. as a woman early yeah. on in her career. And next thing you know, she's got to play a woman in everything. <laughs> well, she goes right the way back to 1915 in movies. Wow. Lillian Mildred West, folks. All right. Well, uh, we have had our, uh, our last call for, uh, <laughs> for comments. So I suppose the next thing to say is thank you to our guest, Anthony Strand, yeah. for joining us. Um, Anthony, what is the current status of the Moving Right Along podcast? You guys are between films right now, right? We are between films. So I should maybe explain what the podcast is briefly? Please do, yeah. Moving Right Along is a podcast where we watch the Muppet movies two minutes at a time. Each episode, we take a two-minute chunk and <laughs> discuss it in detail. We try to keep it light and funny and, you know, kind of silly. I mean, it's the Muppets. We don't want to be too uh, academic about it, right? But... We are between films. We've done the first three, the Jim Henson era films, uh, the Muppet movie, Great Muppet Caper, and Muppets Take Manhattan, where we had uh, one Noah Diamond on as, as, a, as a New York expert for, for one scene, which was the delight of what? course. Yeah. You should, ch- you should check out his work. Uh, outside of the Marx Brothers Council podcast, my favorite podcast experience was appearing on Moving Right Along with Anthony and his co-host, who is a Marx Brothers Council member, Ryan Rowe. Talking about the famous uh, "the frog is staying" moment from the Muppets Take Manhattan, which is uh, which is uh, the whole reason I'm here right now. Um, so check it out. There, you're going to be back to discuss uh, Muppet Christmas Carol is next on your uh, chronological journey, right? M- Muppet Christmas Carol will be up next. Um, we did this past December. We did Muppet Family Christmas, the special, two minutes at a time. We released one episode every day, December first through twenty fourth, which was. Uh, more of an editing headache than I anticipated, but was really fun to do. Uh, so, you know, check that out if it sounds interesting. Do you only do Jim Henson era Muppets? Well, that's all we've done so far. You know, that's that's just that's just how far we are. Do you consider the we're rest pl- canon? Yeah, sure. I mean, we're planning to do all eight theatrical films, which will you know take us up to t- 2014 and Muppets Most Wanted. I don't know how Muppet fandom feels about Jason Siegel and his whole thing, so I'm, I'm curious. Well, you can find out in, you know, four years or something when we mm-hmm. get there. Um, yeah. <laughs> I would say okay. <laughs> I would say, um, reaction is mixed to that one. There are some people who like it mm. a lot more than others. But, and I actually should say, you mentioned my co-host, Ryan Rowe, Noah. He introduced me to the Marx Brothers Council podcast and Facebook group. So really, I have Ryan to thank that I'm on the podcast today at all. I'd, I'd never heard the show when you came on, uh, our show, Noah. And now I've heard every episode, so... Thanks for having me. It's a thrill. Uh, well, likewise. And uh, and yeah, hello and thank you uh, out there to uh, Mr. Ryan Rowe. And uh, if you're interested in the Muppets at all, I really do recommend the Moving Right Along podcast. Uh, although new episodes will be resuming in the near future, I assume. Uh, there's already quite a backlog. They've, they've uh, already covered uh, the three original uh, Muppet films, as well as some incidentals and specials and things. 
Thank you so much. I'm and glad you know, you're talking it. about movies uh, just two minutes at a time is is pretty smart. If we had done that, guys, we'd be so much <laughs> earlier in our process now. <laughs> Imagine we are, now we're going to be talking about minutes 41 and 42 of Go West. <laughs> well, you know, you haven't covered Go West yet. You could do it. You could do 40 episodes on Go West. Yeah, we've been putting that film off. Uh, maybe we'll get to it someday. And maybe we won't. <laughs> now, guys, ref- refresh my memory here. Were we going to do these films anyhow, or did Anthony choose to talk about them? Uh, Anthony pitched us. Uh, Anthony uh, pitched um, being our guest for a Double Dynamite episode. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, we can't leave Girl in Every Port on the table. And uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> probably neither really needs its own dedicated episode. So, Well, we'll be back next month with Mr. Music. <laughs> <laughs> You could do an episode about all of those various Groucho cameos, right? You could do Mr. Music and the, that I Dream of Genie episode and Skidoo and- Rock Hunter. Well, Successful Rock Hunter, right. I mean, I think there's there's maybe maybe enough that it could be a topic. Julia. Oh, yeah. He was on Julia. Huh? That's some. And uh, that uh, shaving cream commercial that he did. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, guy. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, what is there left to do but- uh, um, inter- oh, uh, actually, let's add to our our uh, notes about uh, Anthony and um, and the podcast that he hosts uh, that you can find it all at toughpigs.com, along with lots of Anthony's writing, which is also well worth your time. Yeah, thank you. Um, you have one final duty uh, on our show today, Anthony, and that is, of course, to introduce the carefully chosen closing music. So I actually did carefully choose something. Is that is that actually okay? <laughs> of course. Thank God. It's not hardly playing by the rules, but... Uh... <laughs> right, right. I always feel terrible at this part, this part of the show, oh, so no. I'm so glad you did. No, I thought about it. I, I, I put it in my notes and everything. So we talked about Double Dynamite, a film with dynamite in the name. So we have to throw to, because I host a Muppet podcast, we have to throw to Atom Bomb by Dr. Teeth and the Electric Mayhem a song that very prominently features dynamite <laughs> in the lyrics and is much more enjoyable than the film. <laughs> what could be better? Yeah, this is Dr. T for this time. The boogie, three, four. I'm gonna explode an atom bomb. Brothers Council podcast is produced and edited by Bob Gassell. Matthew Conium Spooks, the annotated Marx Brothers, and That's Me Groucho are published by McFarland. 
Noah Diamond's book, Give Me a Thrill, The Story of All Say She Is, is published by Bear Manor Media. Both can be found at major book outlets. For more info on this and all episodes, visit our website at MarksBrothersCouncilPodcast.com. Also look for us on Twitter. And for the place to talk Marks and meet fellow fans, join us on the lively Marks Brothers Council Facebook group. See you next time!